We are in John chapter 4 this morning. There's a, a book on evangelism, one of my favorite books on evangelism. It was written by a guy named Will Metzger, and, and he tells a story in that book of back in his college days, which are a number of years ago. He would um, use hitchhiking to get home for the weekends. Not exactly an advisable form of transportation for those of you college kids home for Thanksgiving weekend. I, I don't think we would suggest that at all, but Metzger would use that to travel back home, and it struck him how often God providentially gave him rides, that he would be waiting, and sure enough, he would get a ride, and he began to pray about that and, and believe that God wanted him to use those rides as opportunities to share the gospel. He began to pray and prepare and, and mostly ask God for the courage to use those opportunities to share his faith, and that ended up leading to a series of car rides in which a number of strangers' lives were greatly impacted for the gospel of Jesus Christ by this young college student. Now, that is probably not typical for many Christians. We tend to focus evangelism on those who are close to us, on relationships, on those we have been building something with on a long-term basis, be it family, friends, colleagues, classmates, any of those. Uh, but Metzger's challenge in his book is urging us that Christians should see that there is also a responsibility in those short-term relationships, even in those short-term opportunities that God gives to us. Here in John chapter 4 this morning, this passage shows us Jesus Christ in one of those short-term moments, in one of those situations with a person that, at least from a human perspective, it's the first time that he is meeting her, certainly the first time she is meeting him, and it is a very brief encounter, story that we commonly call the woman at the well. And in this brief interaction that John records for us, I want to help us to see this morning just some of the the barriers that come up that are common for all of us to evangelism, barriers that creep in, that, that, that work in situations when we are seeking to share the gospel, they come up for Jesus as well, and just see if we can learn from how Jesus responds to those barriers. Let's just read the first four verses in John chapter 4 just to sort of set the scenario. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Sets the scene. You'll recall last week that we had read of, of John and Jesus both in the midst of baptizing uh, Jesus' disciples, baptizing in his name, and there was this sort of contention with John's followers over the baptism and the crowds that are now growing. And it appears that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are also acutely aware of the fact that Jesus is drawing larger and larger crowds, and so there is some concern. And so Jesus and his disciples, we know, had left the area around Jerusalem. Let me just see if we can, uh, if I can find where I am on the map. So we're down here in Jerusalem. This is the area of Judea. Jesus has been in this area and has gone out into the, the, the wilderness area. And it tells us that he's going to leave that, that Jerusalem area because of the Jewish religious leaders gathering around. He's going to go back up north. The question of his travel comes up because verse 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So Jesus is here in Jerusalem. If we go all the way up, we see Galilee where we've already read the early part of his ministry, the wedding feast at Cana, Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. And so his travel is going to go from Jerusalem up north. The problem is in between is the region of Samaria, a group of people with Jewish roots but who are mixed-race people and, and whom the Jews are not particularly fond of. If you go back more than 500, excuse me, more than 900 years, and we'll back up even further, 
you don't see Samaria at this point, but you have Judah, which is the southern kingdom of the Jews, and Israel, which is the northern kingdom, the ten tribes that are up here. And there's the town of Samaria, after which the region will be named. And then you have Judah with Jerusalem in it, and that's the, the two southern tribes. Um, that was, at that point, the Jewish people are split up into those two nations. Israel, the northern kingdom, their leaders rebelled almost from their inception. It is just one story after another of kings who lead the people into evil, who lead them into idolatry and to turning away from God. And so as punishment for Israel's rebellion, God uses a nation which would be over in this area, in a large part of that northeastern area of Assyria, to come in and to conquer Israel, to take the northern kingdom. And what the Assyrians do when they come in and conquer, what they realized was the best way of keeping people under their thumb was to deport and resettle them. And so you would take people from one place that you had conquered, especially high-ranking people, and you would move them from that land into a different land. And so if you were a citizen of high standing in Israel, when the Assyrians came in, they would take you and move you somewhere else to somewhere else they had conquered, and vice versa. So that happens in 722 BC. So that that region then becomes this sort of mixed race group with some Jewish roots, but it's, it's largely been confused and, and weakened and distorted by the Assyrian captivity. The result then is the Samaritan people. To make matters worse as far as the Jews were concerned, the Samaritans over time accept only the first five books of the Bible, only the Pentateuch as we would call it in the Old Testament. And they also build a temple around Mount Gerizim, which is up in their region, not in Jerusalem. And they see that as the place of worship. So all of that then, if we go back to this travel map, makes this interesting because for a lot of Jews, this was an area that they did not want to pass through. And so they would either take a route that, as you see, goes around to the eastern side, uh, western side, I should say, or they would actually go out, cross the Jordan at points, and come back in to get up to Galilee. Jesus, on the other hand, goes straight through. And you see the city of Sukkar there. That's going to be in the, the midst of what we're looking at this morning. Jesus opted to pass straight through. Verse 4 again says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Uh, there is either the logistical part of that, which means that for time purposes or expediency, he had to go that way. More than likely, although John doesn't say it here, there is some sense of divine compulsion. There is a sovereign heavenly father who rules over this, and Jesus is following the plan that has been given to him by his father, and he is going through Samaria where he will have this encounter. Okay, so verse 5. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour. That would be noon, sixth hour from daylight, from about 6 a.m. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John adds parenthetically, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Here's where the story gets really interesting. The fact that Jesus travels through Samaria is perhaps unusual. The fact that he now engages in a conversation with a Samaritan woman is completely countercultural. He is going against everything that are sort of societal norms at this point. So here's that, that first barrier I want to suggest to you to our evangelism, and that's just simply differences, the differences that we have between us and other people. 
In the case here with Jesus, there's at least three that we can see right offhand. There's the ethnicity issue, that she is a Samaritan, which she points out and says, why are you even talking to me? I recognize that you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. A Samaritan. We have nothing in common with each other. Why are you even talking to me? And so there's the, the ethnic issue. Secondly is the fact that she is a woman, which for a first century Jewish rabbi, you did not engage generally, the first century Jewish rabbis did not engage with women publicly. So you've got Jewish rabbi lore that tells us that, first of all, concerning Samaritans, that Jewish rabbis had a tendency to pray that the Lord would not remember the um, Samaritans in the resurrection. Calvin said that they saw the Samaritans as the scum of the earth. And then you had this argument that the first century Jewish rabbi would not have anything to do with the woman in public. There was a sect of Pharisees called the bruised and blind because they would cover their eyes in public and walk into things because they didn't want to see a woman who was approaching from the other direction. So you've got that, that's sort of a cultural issue at play. And then you also have the reality that Jesus knows her past. Jesus knows her history, which certainly her community knows as well. And she is in a pattern of sin that Jesus will deal with shortly. But it is such that it probably has given her a reputation that is known in this community. Uh, one of the reasons commentators will say that she is likely out there in the middle of the day getting water by herself is because she has probably been somewhat ostracized by her community. Typically, she would have gone out with a group early in the morning, in the cool of the day, and perhaps again at later in the day when it was cooler, when you would go with others, and, and it would be a group activity. Here she is by herself. So likely ostracized to some degree. Taken together, those are tremendous barriers to evangelism, at least in the culture of that day for Jesus to engage with her in a serious way goes against everything that fits societal norms at that point. So what does Jesus do? She has just said to him, what do you have to do with me? And yet Jesus is the one, verse 7, who says, give me a drink. Despite all of the differences that Jesus knew, he initiated a conversation with her. He starts the conversation with the, the intent of taking it to be a deeper conversation against all of the rules of ethnicity and etiquette. Jesus speaks first and engages this woman. The, the, on top of that is the fact that it is noon. It is clear from the text that Jesus is thirsty. He is still fully man, and so he is experiencing what any man would face at that point in the day, weariness from the journey, thirst from the journey. And so there is just a, a general sense of fatigue in addition to all of the differences. Put yourself in that situation. When it's the person who is different from you online at McDonald's, the person who dresses differently from you sitting next to you at the theater or on the VRE or on the Metro, uh, the cashier at 7-Eleven who is different from you, who doesn't look like you. And, and, and add to all that then a sense of fatigue, of I'm having a really busy day. I've got a lot on my mind. I've got all kinds of things that I'm doing. And put all that together, and, and I don't know about you, but but I'm not real prone at that point to start conversations with people, especially ones that are beyond just, hey, how's it going? You know, and, and, and we know, and we say we don't want a long answer to that. We don't want their life story. We don't really want to know all that's happening at that point. We just want to be pleasant and move on. Jesus starts a conversation. Instead of avoiding her, he begins to speak with her. And so she raises this question then. How are you talking to me? So verse 10 
Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Let me pause there. Here's the point in our conversations. If we're striving to be evangelistic, this is sort of that that turning point in the conversation where it can be derailed, where it's sort of a transition moment from, hey, what a nice day, to something like, hey, didn't God make a beautiful day today? You know, something that we're actually going to use to, to sort of turn the conversation in some direction. That's where we kind of make that choice at that point of, do I just keep this simple, superficial, don't go any deeper and move along, or do I actually begin to try to put something out there that, that, that might draw some interest from this person? In this case, she asked a, a serious question, why would you talk to me, you being a Jew, me a Samaritan? And Jesus could have easily given just a secular, simple answer that would have been very dismissive of further conversation. I don't know, I'm thirsty. I, I don't have the same societal qualms that others do. I don't mind talking to you, it's okay. Or just something to sort of pass it off and move on. Instead, Jesus takes this, uh, th- this response and he begins an interesting conversation with her about a gift from God. Now, her response to this, when he begins to speak of this gift of God, is another common barrier to evangelism at this point, and it is disinterest or diversion. His comment to her immediately is, if you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked. And she responds with this, you got nothing to get water with. Jacob had to get water from the well. What are you talking about? She is either completely uninterested in spiritual things at this point, or she just doesn't even get it. She's not clued into what he's trying to say, and she is being perhaps even intentional about diverting the conversation. She doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, and so she sort of goes in a different direction. doesn't appear at this point that she was very interested in the whole God part of the conversation, because he's talking about this wonderful gift from God, and she's back on the issue of the water. He's dealing with something now that is offering her salvation from her sins, and she's just there to get a bucket of water. Why are we engaging in this conversation? I don't care about this gift of God. How, how do you plan on getting water? And that's, that's probably how most people are that we encounter only briefly, right? They're headed somewhere. They're doing something. They've got their mind focused, and, and, and they've just, they're just getting something done. Occasionally, there are those rare moments when we crack open the door to the gospel and somebody actually sort of invites us in and welcomes the conversation. But for the most part, people just want to get on with life. And in many instances, that may be as far as our conversation gets. We sort of put out an, an invitation, if you will, to talk about something deeper, something that has more to do with meaningful issues of life and more often than not, they're likely to decline that, and the invitation sort of ends there. But, but Jesus pursues this. She's taken on this water thing, and look at Jesus then in verse 13. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this, the water here in this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Well, let's pause there for just a second. So the barrier is either, it, it, it's a kind of disinterest at this point, it seems, or it's diversion. She's intentionally diverting. And what does Jesus respond with? This intriguing statement. He goes right toward what he was talking about and makes it even all the more enticing at this moment. He takes the picture that he started that she completely blew off, and he says, oh, no, no, not going to let you do it that easily. This is remarkable, and, and you need to hear about this. And so he responds with something that will profoundly change her life. He started by telling her about a gift of God that was living water. That phrase, living water, sounds unusual to us. It would not have been to a first century woman because it would have been used to describe running water, like a, a stream or a creek of some kind. So it was fresh water that was moving in some way. And so she can be understood here when she seems to, to misunderstand what it is that he's talking about when she says that, you know, what kind of water are you talking about? Where do you get that living water, she says in verse 11. Um, it, in the midst of a dry area like that, there aren't a lot of streams and brooks around. And so she can be understood for saying, where do you get this kind of running water? We're here at a well. This, this is what we've got at this point. Where do you propose to find fresh running water? She even pokes a jab. I mean, if you go back to verse 12, when she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. This was, this was land that the Old Testament patriarch Jacob had, and he handed down to Joseph. We see it in Genesis 48 when, when um, Jacob wills this to Joseph. There's nothing in Genesis about the digging of a well, but presumably Jacob needed a well dug there in order to get water. And what she's saying to him is, listen, even Jacob, we, we know Jacob, at least we agree on that, Jews and Samaritans. We agree that he is a patriarch. Even he needed a well. Who do you think you are? Are you like some kind of magician that you're going to just stand here and go, living water, and suddenly water is going to come rushing through? Even Jacob needed a well and a bucket and, and had to get water the, the same way. I think you could add at the end of verse 12, if you used our vernacular today, give me a break. Because that's really her tone at this point. How are you going to get this? That, that, that just doesn't even make sense. To which, again, put ourselves in Jesus' position when somebody, you're trying to talk to them about life things, things that matter, life and death, eternity and Jesus, and, and they're just being dismissive, if not sarcastic or cute in their response. And isn't it tempting at that point to just figure, never mind, doesn't get it, not, no point here, I might as well not waste my time. And, and we would understand if Jesus' response at that point was to say, well, I guess she's not interested. We tend to, you know, God must not be opening a door here. So that's, that's sort of the end of that. We kind of quit. Jesus didn't. And he sets out now to offer her something that she desperately needed. Something that was so much better than fresh water where she was still stuck. And he proceeds to, to come at her with this intriguing and beautiful picture in verse 14, when he says that this water I am giving, it, it's, it will be like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The Greek word for welling up is the same word for leaping. In Acts chapter 3, verse 8, when the apostles heal the man, uh, some of you sang this song back in Sunday school back in the day about the man who went laughing and leaping and praising God. The word for leaping there in Acts, as he leapt up, 
is the same word that is being used here by Jesus when he speaks about this spring that is leaping up. He is offering her something that is not just even just a little brook. He's offering her something that is springing up, leaping into eternal life. You and I have probably seen springs that you know, bubble up a little bit from the ground, or maybe they shoot up even some feet in the air. But this one, as one commentator puts it, is like water that reaches from the present to the future existence. It is just a tremendous spring. J.C. Ryle in the 19th century, paraphrasing Jesus, said, He that receives my gift of living water has a fountain opened in his soul of spiritual satisfaction, which shall neither be dried up in this life or the life to come, but shall flow on to all eternity. Isn't that a great picture? And that's what Jesus is presenting for her here. This, this is something that, that you need. We're not talking about just a brook. We're talking about something that matters for your soul forever. This is what you need. There's even an interesting change in the verb tense between 13 and 14, between talking about the water at the well and the water he's giving. In verse 13, it's present tense, the, the word for drinking. Everyone who drinks of this water, present tense is the idea of ongoing. Whoever drinks, whoever is drinking, who continues to drink of this water, because we're humans, right? We need water. And so he says, this water here, you're just going to keep drinking it because you'll always be thirsty and you'll come back for more. But verse 14, when he talks about the living water, he uses what's called the aorist tense in the Greek, which is point of time. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. It's a past form of the past tense. And what he's saying is, whoever takes of this water will find ongoing satisfaction. What I have come to give to you, this gift of God, will satisfy you from this point forward forevermore. This is living water. Whoever drinks of it will enjoy this water and have lasting satisfaction forever as believers in Jesus Christ. This picture that he gives in verse 14 should drive us to worship. If we are recipients of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are recipients of his life joined to him, this is what he is giving to us, is that, that satisfaction and that peace, that that thirst quenching joy that doesn't satisfy for just a point in time, but that is an ongoing work in our souls and is Jesus' provision for us. The, the problem with, for unbelievers that they find is that all of the things they, they seek their joy and their satisfaction and their pleasure from are here on earth, and so they are temporary, and then they, they rust, uh, they break, they go out of fashion, they don't matter anymore, pleasure they once gave no longer seems to be there. A few years ago, a writer put together a list of must-have Christmas toys over the years. It went back a long ways. I'll pick it up. In the early 1960s, the must-have toy of that year for girls was a talking doll called a Chatty Cathy. And for guys, it was G.I. Joe. Some of you remember, right? G.I. Joe? Go up a few years, 1977, for some of you Star Wars people, it was Star Wars action figures. I'm sure a few of you collected those. A few years after that, the, the craze was Cabbage Patch Kids and all of the, the fights in the malls over Cabbage Patch Kids. Nintendo games, 20 years ago, kids wanted a Tamagotchi. If you have no idea what a Tamagotchi is, ask your parents. They, they no doubt encountered a Tamagotchi or had to buy one at one time or another. 
The heart of man is a storehouse of unending desires. There's always a better model. There's always something newer, something that does it better, something that seems cooler. And our hearts just feed on that, and they long for that which is better. And yet, when you try to find that satisfaction in stuff and relationships and things here on earth, it's always fleeting. It's what we read over the summer back in Ecclesiastes. It's, it's pleasurable for a season, but then it goes away. And that's how Jesus intrigues the Samaritan woman, because he knows her heart. And he knows that in her heart is a desire for lasting peace and joy and satisfaction. In fact, he knows her well enough to know the immorality she's been involved in and know that that's all part of this. There's this quest for something to hold on to that will give meaning, something that will satisfy. And Jesus is saying to her, listen, I've got something that will satisfy your soul now and forever. That is the gospel that you and I have to offer to unbelievers, and it is also the gospel in which we live day to day, in which we believe that Jesus Christ is giving us joy and satisfaction and, and, and caring for us and is our joy and our hope each and every day. So now at this point in the conversation, he's captured her attention. He's overcome some of the differences that, that stood between them. He's engaged her in this deepening conversation. The next barrier becomes her misplaced desires. He's offered living water that springs up. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She still doesn't get it. At this point, she still doesn't understand who it is that's, that's standing before her. She still doesn't understand the depth of her need. What she's settling for at this point is something that will be fleeting, that will make life good at the moment, and will make life easier. Listen, if you can give me something that I don't have to keep lugging this bucket out here and putting it down in this well and dragging this bucket of water back, if you got something to fix that, man, let me have it. That sounds great. But she's still not getting what he's explaining to her. Sad thing is, is there are people today who still evangelize on that, that basis of man's felt needs, who still sort of look at Jesus as if you want him because of all the good gifts things, kind of stuff that he can give you, how he can, he can just cure all your sicknesses and, and give you that new job, and, and if you have enough faith, he'll even give you the big house you wanted. You just got to believe in Jesus, and Jesus will make everything go just hunky-dory from here on out. Sad that we would even evangelize on that basis because here's this woman who is confused on that very point that Jesus is offering her something eternal for her soul and she's still caught in the, you got something to make my, my here and now physical life better so I don't have to keep lugging this water? You got something to fix that? She's starting to see, but she's still trapped by her own wrong desires at this point for something immediate and temporary. What would you have said next? So here you are in this evangelistic conversation, and her response to your explanation of living water is to say, okay, give me this water so I don't have to be thirsty or I, I don't have to come to this well. What, would, what might you say at that point? I know for me, I'd be real tempted to say, well, okay, if you pray and ask Jesus to be your Savior, then he'll provide for you. And I'd, I'd sort of gloss over exactly what she was asking and try to move right to, okay, you can get this gift, you know, sort of jump on that. Not what Jesus does at all. Instead, Jesus responds to her in a way that is, again, seems totally countercultural. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. That is a stunning response at that point. Here she's, she's sort of beginning to move along with you. She's engaging in the conversation. She's not just sort of blowing you off or telling you to go away, and it's like, how do I, you know, humanly speaking here, how do I land the hook, right? And instead, what does Jesus do? She's got these, these misguided desires at this point, and so he indicts her on her sin. He takes her to convict her of her sin because what he knows is in her heart, she's still looking for the wrong thing because she does not yet perceive what the problem is that she actually needs solving. She's still stuck on the thirst and carrying water issue. Jesus is trying to talk about something that has to do with sin and forgiveness of sin. So he ties her life to the very quest for pleasure that had dragged her through years of immorality. The Greek word for husband in verse 16 can either be husband or man in general. Context is really what determines it there. So you could identify this as either. Um, she's had been sort of serial marriages and been divorced and married, or it's just a, a, a serial fornication, if you will. Either way, Jesus' point to her is you have been in one relationship after another, and the man you are with now is not your husband. Up until now, she has not understood entirely who Jesus is. She's not understood the nature of the gift. She's not even begun to scratch the surface of, of the dimensions of her need right now. But in one fell swoop, Jesus just drives the whole thing home. He says, ma'am, you are a sinner. And, and that's what's nagging at your heart. That's, that's where the hopelessness and the shame and the sin, that's where you're trapped, is at that level. He, he comes to her with her sin. And, and if we look at that and think, wow, that's, that's harsh. You know, that's kind of blunt. Just remember, how did John the Baptist introduce Jesus when he first pointed to him in John 1.29? Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world, right? He didn't come to, to, to meet all the felt needs. He came to deal with the one need that you and I are helpless with. It is the one thing that separates us from our creator, the one thing that you and I on our own can do nothing about, and the one thing that if left alone will sentence us to an eternal death separated from God. Jesus came to solve that, to remove the sin that separates us from God and to offer us forgiveness. And he is the only one who can do that. And that's what he's saying to her. So when she, in verse 15, comes back with this, yeah, I'll take that so I don't have to come and get water anymore, Jesus takes the opportunity to show her, listen, what you're craving is more than just water to drink. Your soul is craving hope and meaning and joy that lasts into eternity. And that's what I'm talking to you about. That's the kind of lasting joy that you need. She, she didn't need freedom from hauling buckets of water. What she needed was a Savior who would remove all of her sin and guilt. And Jesus says, I've, I've come. This is what, what he has come to bring. She is a broken person, lost in a life that seems hopeless and without purpose or satisfaction or joy, and Jesus offers change to that. And he was not willing to let her walk away at this point without bringing up the reality of her greatest need and the only solution that could satisfy it. 
That's a helpful lesson, I think, to you and I for our sharing of the gospel. We're not omniscient. Um, we, don't, we don't know everything about the people that we're talking to. and We don't know all about their circumstances. We can't compare with Jesus on that level. But what we do know is that every unbeliever we are talking about is a sinner. They have a problem with sin that they have tried in some way or another to deal with, either by dismissing it, ignoring it, covering it up, uh, drinking past it, using relationships to cover it up. Something or another they've tried. They still struggle with sin and guilt, and we know that about every unbeliever we talk to, and we know that only Jesus can save them from that. And so that's the opportunity for us. Because we know that when a person does come to see that, okay, there, there seems to be a maker, there seems to be a creator God, and when they come to see that he is a holy God and that sin is what separates them from any relationship with him, they will either embrace their need of a savior or they will move in another direction quickly and rebel against him and ignore him and turn from him and look somewhere else to deal with their sin. In the case of the Samaritan woman, she's now been confronted. Jesus has said, go get your husband. He's, he's convicted her sin. She changes the subject. Verse 19, some distraction here. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And stop there. So Jesus has just unveiled, unveiled the real need of, of her heart, of the fact that she is a sinner in need of grace and, and forgiveness and has confronted her about the mess that her life is in. And she doesn't at that point say, Lord, you've got me. All right, that's who I am, so what do I do? Instead, she does what you've probably had conversations with people who have done the very same thing. She sort of shifted topics. There is evidence, at least, that she's starting to recognize some divine authority in Jesus because she says, I perceive you're a prophet. That's a significant statement for a person who only believes in the first five books of the Bible because that's probably going back to the promise in the book of Deuteronomy of a second Moses where God speaks of a prophet who will come, who will be powerful like Moses, and who will speak the words of God like Moses in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, that, that promise of this great coming prophet. And so in her mind, if perhaps this is that one, then let's, let's settle this ages-old debate right now about place of worship. We Samaritans believe it's Mount Gerizim. You believe it's Jerusalem. What say you, one who speaks with such authority at this point? The debate was significant. Jews believed, as we see in the context of Old Testament Scripture, that Jerusalem was the place that God had designated as the place to build the temple and for worship. Samaritans believed it was Mount Gerizim. Both knew, Deuteronomy 12.5 says, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. So both knew this was a serious topic. And she decides now is the time to go, All right answer this. Ever been in one of those evangelistic conversations with someone and, and they're sort of tracking and then it's the question about, well, why do people suffer? Where does evil come from? What do you think about same-sex marriage? How do you deal with this? You kind of have been progressing along and then it's sort of like this bomb gets dropped in the midst of the conversation. And it's Perhaps intentional as a distraction. It's not clear if she means it intentional, but she certainly is testing him at this point and saying, all right, what are you going to do with this? Look how Jesus responds. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, 
Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's helpful for us to see how Jesus responds to this distracting question at this point. He doesn't get into a theological debate with her. He doesn't say, well, let's talk about the Old Testament canon and the books of the Old Testament and why Jerusalem is actually the place and Mount Gerizim is not. He doesn't engage with her on all of the fine points and try to inform her because obviously if he had said to her, listen, if you just read past Deuteronomy, you'd know that Jerusalem is the place, that probably would have ended the conversation at that point. She would have seen that as the the roadblock. He disagreed with her and, and that would be the end. Instead, what Jesus does is he takes what she's given him, worship. Where do you worship? And he narrows it down to two people, her and God. Listen, you want to understand worship? I want you to know what it means for you to be a worshiper of the one true God. You're putting this in sort of broad debate sort of terms, Samaritans versus Jews, Gerizim versus Jerusalem. I don't know. I want to talk about you and how you are supposed to be a worshiper of God. And he narrows it down much more to her. He says to her there in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. He's speaking you all in that sense of talking about the Samaritans in general, but more specifically to her. You want a debate settled. You want this, this debate, which is an issue of national pride for the Samaritans, that they, they hold to their place being the true abode of God. And Jesus could have easily provoked more debate and gotten into that. In a sense, he says, no, you don't really even understand the fullness of God. You don't understand who it is you're worshiping. Now, part of that is due, in fact, to the, is due in, to the fact that, that they don't believe in the full canon of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures at this point, so they don't understand the full revelation of God. But what he's really doing is he's drawing her back here to God, putting her and God on the same page to say, okay, isn't it more important that we understand where you are? We could have the theological debate and try to answer your questions. But what she needs to understand is things are changing right now. An hour is coming, verse 23, and in fact is now here. And they will worship him in spirit and in truth. What's he talking about? Himself. He's saying, listen, there's coming a moment here when, when frankly, even Jerusalem isn't going to matter as a place to go to worship. Because, in fact, the true temple is right here. (laughs) He is standing before her. The the dwelling of God amongst men is there in Emmanuel, is God with us. And there is Jesus standing before her, and he's saying, worship of God is now going to happen in union with him through his spirit. Believers will be brought to him through his spirit, and they will be joined to Christ. They will be joined to God through him. All of this really is is where John is going to go with, with the rest of the teaching that Jesus is giving in the Gospel of John where he's essentially going to tell people, no man can come to the Father except by me, right? And and what he's doing here is he's clearly speaking to her with divine authority, calling her to believe the truth and to respond. You need to understand what true worship is. And I'm here to, to teach you 
and to lead you to that. And if you and I are to be true worshipers, we too must listen to Jesus. For you to be a true worshiper of God, you can, you can claim to be a spiritual person, you can claim to believe in the existence of a God, but unless you come to him through Jesus Christ, unless you believe the words of Jesus Christ, unless you believe that truth that he has spoken, you are not a true worshiper of the living God. And that's what he's calling her now is to, to worship in spirit and truth, is to, to listen to the truth that he is speaking to her. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And just to close this section out, these last couple of verses, she says, I know Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She's coming along. Something's happening here. Because now she's starting to think, okay, we were taught about this coming one, this Messiah. It's one that we would expect, and when he comes, he would make all things clear. Whether or not that's a skeptical response, probably more likely it is the early stages of her belief because of what we're going to see next week when she goes back to the Samaritan village. She has, she's now beginning, God is opening her eyes to see that this one speaking to her is not just some great prophet or some interesting teacher. She's now beginning to wonder if this is indeed the Messiah who has come to her. And what Jesus says to her in his response, literally in the Greek, is, I am. We know that phrase, right? The, the, the way it's worded here is Jesus said to her, I am the one speaking to you. Jesus will use that term later in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 8, and they will pick up stones to stone him because the Jews who heard him say, as Abraham was, I am, so they know that he is saying, I am self-existent God. I did not start somewhere, I always am. And what he says to her is, you're looking for Messiah? I am. And it is his open declaration that he indeed is the one sent from God. And that's how, John, that's how Jesus finishes this conversation with her. You are seeking the Messiah, I am. I've come to be the rescuer and the deliverer. If we take anything out of this passage, I, I hope that we are encouraged and challenged by his mercy toward her and his patience and his persistence with her and his kindness to her. This is a conversation that, again, culturally speaking, never should have begun and that as we've gone through it, we could see several jumping off points, several points where any one of us could have said, Okay, I can't get a whole lot farther with this. This, this just isn't going well at all. And through all of this, we see our Savior persist. Through countless barriers to the gospel, he lovingly has a passion and concern for her soul and desperately wants her to see that this is about her standing before God and whether or not she will be counted among those who are true worshipers those who come to God in the way that he has prescribed, and that is through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And so he persists with her. And I hope that's the challenge. It certainly is for me. I hope it is for you as well, that as I read through a passage like this, to be praying and asking God for just those simple opportunities. Might be short-term ones. Might be the kind that ordinarily I would go, I can't get into a serious conversation now. My phone is dinging with an alert for what I need to do next, right? Maybe that's the opportunity God sets to begin to talk about the living water that you and I have, to persist a little bit, to be merciful a little longer, to love enough to go ahead and, and speak just a little bit more 
and, and do as our Savior did and lovingly lead her along to see the greatness of God and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for showing us not only Jesus as our Savior, but showing Jesus in his great love, drawing people to himself, showing us our Savior, weary and thirsty, and yet never losing sight of the souls of the people around him. Lord, this week, as opportunities come up, give us a, a concern and a passion for that clerk at the store, that waitress at the restaurant, that person we're next to online, wherever it might be. Lord, if you would be so kind as to, to give us opportunities, grant us wisdom to be able to to speak and boldness to, to hold you out, Lord, we pray that you would take and, and bear fruit, whether it be now or fruit years from now. Might you take and use us for the sake of your kingdom. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray that today they would see what, what the woman there was beginning to see, that there is a Savior who has come, that that the obstacle that stands between them and you is sin. We all are sinners, every one of us. And we need a Savior who would come and, and pay the price for that sin and stand in our place and take the judgment we deserve in order that we might receive eternal life, a spring welling up to eternal life. Lord, might you be pleased to save this day. And Lord, Cause us to leave here rejoicing in gladness at receiving the living water. Thank you that for whatever thirst we might have for, for water that's part of being in the flesh, that our, the thirst in our soul has been quenched by a Savior who gives unending peace and satisfaction, who is there to give us contentment, not only in this life, but an abundant joy on into the life to come. It's in his name we pray. Amen.